The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, you're listening to KUCI in Irvine. This is Privacy Piracy with your host, Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy expert. She's also the author of a few books, including her two new books, From Victim to Victor, A Step-by-Step Guide for Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft, and Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit. You can go to www.identitytheft.org where you can learn more. And uh, she has like 70 pages of free info there. So... Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. We're back. glad to have you back after being out ill. Yeah, I've been away. Yeah, and you forgot to say this is 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. But the good news is, is that we're here, and we have a fabulous show tonight. So who's on tonight? We have Senator Jackie Spear. Oh, good. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about her. First of all, I'm, I must say that I thank her again. She wrote a testimonial for my book, Safeguard Your Identity. And uh, she's one of my heroes, so it's really terrific to have her. Let me tell you about uh, Senator Spear. Senator Jackie Spear's legacy as a policymaker and public servant in California for over 25 years is one of leadership, passion, and courage. And she is a wonderful privacy advocate. She's been an assembly person as, as well as a senator, and presently she is assistant president pro tem of the California Senate Um, Term limits are going to end her term, and she is running for lieutenant governor. So we're not going to lose her completely, but unfortunately we're going to lose her as a privacy advocate, uh, as a legislator. You know, we talked about this before, Lloyd. Remember I told you that Jackie's story was really pretty devastating. Uh, Her commitment to public service really began back in Guyana in 1978, Uh, Remember, we talked about that Jackie was a a young congressional staff person when she nearly lost her life in an attempt to uncover facts regarding the Reverend Jim Jones. Remember that when that investigation? It was scary. It was scary. And um, he had the People's Temple followers. Kool-Aid drinkers. Right. Over 900 people died that day that she was there, including Congressman Leo Ryan and four other people traveling with them. And Jackie herself was shot five times and left to die. But as she said many times during those 22 hours of waiting for help to arrive to help her, that molded her philosophy. And I I guess it was like a near-death experience enough to show her that she realized that uh, her life was safe for a reason. So she was going to make a difference. So we're we're really glad that she's made the difference. She has an incredible legislative uh, history of over 300 of her bills that have been signed into law. We're going to be talking about some of those bills, but I have to tell you, her privacy legislation has been really influential throughout the entire country. So um, I'll just tell you a little bit more because some people may not know that Jackie was born in San Francisco. She earned her B.A. degree um, from University of California, Davis. She graduated from Hastings College of Law up at Berkeley, and she's a mother and a wife and a uh, a fabulous person that we're all really thrilled to talk to. Jackie, uh, are you there? I am, Mari. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I know your schedule is so busy. So so let's find out a little bit, Jackie, about why is is privacy so important to you? I think it's important to all Californians and really all Americans. Uh, 92% of the people in this state, when they were polled, thought that their financial information should not be uh, sold by financial institutions and that they had the right to um, be left alone, as um, Justice Brandeis once said in a, uh, a Supreme Court opinion. Right. It is, it's becoming more and more of an issue because with all this technology that we just can't keep up with it and all the security issues, people are kind of mixing up the difference between security and privacy. Um, you're best known probably for, the, uh, for SB1, that bill that, that finally, <laughs> we all worked to try and help you, and uh, it finally, finally got passed. So um, can you 
explain to our audience who may not know about what a fantastic bill that really was and, and what, what that meant for us as Californians? I sure can. Yeah, it was a four-year odyssey, and I got bludgeoned every year for um, three and a half years, uh, $20 million being spent by uh, various financial institutions for lobbyists and campaign contributions to make sure that it didn't get passed. And finally, I walked away from the table and said, you know what, I, I'm just not going to do this. I'm going to go to an initiative. And I worked with the CEO of a then company called Elon. Uh, it still exists, but he is no longer the CEO. His name's Chris Larson. He got his company to commit $750,000 to qualify an initiative on the ballot. And once it was qualified, all of a sudden, all those institutions came back to the table. And what we have gained in California is the strongest financial privacy law in the country, which means that financial institutions, be it an insurance company, a bank, a credit card company, uh, they cannot sell your financial information that they have on you to anyone without your permission, uh, either through express permission or through you opting out. They can, however, share it with their affiliates, their family of companies, as they like to refer to themselves. Unfortunately, some of these companies' families are, you know, 1,700 affiliates. But um, we lost that part of the battle in, in court just recently. But nonetheless, um, you are now in control of your financial information in terms of who gets it. Now, why that's important is because before they were selling it. And by selling it, they were selling your financial DNA, in effect. And you don't know who they were selling it to, um, if it was getting into the wrong hands, if um, ID theft was being um, um, acquired as a result of that. And that is um, why I felt so strongly about doing it. Furthermore, you know, all these companies that buy this information, uh, we don't know what they're using it for. Are they using it to then make decisions on whether or not they're going to offer us products or services or charge us a higher premium for a particular product or service? Um, it, it, it's all of that kind of um, massaging of information that we don't know about that could, in fact, be very discriminatory against us. Right, and there was no transparency. Exactly. And, you know, so you opt out. You don't even know who they sold to before you opted out. So, no, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you were able to get that passed. So, so why was there so much opposition? I don't think people realize the tremendous opposition that you went through and, like you said, that odyssey. Um, explain to people why there was so much opposition by the financial industry. Uh, it's real simple. It's um, one word, greed. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the hearings we held, um, we had a, a direct marketer who had gotten out of the business but was an expert in the area. His name was is um, Mike DeCastro, and he estimated that in the year 2002 that these financial institutions were making over $400 million a year just on the sale of the financial information of Californians. Wow. So they had lots to lose by losing this ability, and um, it was worth an investment of $20 million trying to make sure that I was not successful. Right. So, so how, how are they complying now? Well, it's kind of an interesting question because uh, the law requires that if they share financial information, they've got to give the consumer the opportunity to opt out. And it's got to be a plain, simple form that they can just check some boxes, uh, that it's got to have a stamped self-addressed envelope or two cost-free ways in which a consumer can opt out. Mm-hmm. Well, as I've looked at my privacy notices coming in, none of them are doing that. So we then went to the uh, various enforcers of the law, and those are the Department of Financial Institutions and the Department of Corporations. And what we're being told is that these companies now are not sharing financial information, so therefore are not providing that notification uh, and that um you know, opportunity to opt out. Well, if in fact that is the case, um, that's great for Californians. But I worry that that isn't happening. And so at some point I may request an audit to find out whether or not that is in fact um, the case, that they are complying with the law. Yeah, I think it's a real good idea. Because <laughs> I think it's so easy to get around the wording of the law. You know, they, they find every which way to, to hide beneath, you know, certain wording to get away with what they want to get away with. Mm-hmm. So what's the bottom line for uh, California consumers when it comes to financial privacy? What, 
you know, how are we really doing and how are the feds trying to change it? Well, you know, leave it to Congress to try and preempt the states from from doing more on behalf of consumers. I mean, they have a horrible reputation of doing just that under the guise of saying, well, we don't want to have 50 states with 50 laws. So what they do is um, preempt the states and then uh, pass something that is, is very modest. Now, what happened, the reason why the, the financial privacy law uh, was was able to, to be moved and why we weren't preempted was because it was the, the spinoff of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that was passed by Congress oh, probably four or five years ago, which um, most of these financial institutions had been salivating for for decades because up until then, a bank could not be owned by an insurance company and vice versa. And this particular law allowed for the merging of these institutions into what they now call you know, financial supermarkets. And one of the spinoffs was to allow for this privacy protection that consumers um, could benefit from and that states could enhance. And so we attempted to enhance it because what they put on the books was really pretty bogus. It basically said that um, all these financial institutions could share your financial information with anyone they wanted to. Um, that was another financial institution. You had no say about it, and um, you could opt out only of the sharing that took place between your financial institution and a non-financial institution. For instance, um, your financial institution is going to sell your financial data to a um, cruise company, and uh, they would have to give you the opportunity to opt out under that circumstance. But they could sell it to another financial institution, whether it be an insurance company or a bank or a credit card company, and you'd have no say. Right. I think we're the only state besides, isn't it North Dakota that also has an opt-in? I think we're one of just two states that was able to to get this. And the rest of the country really has to suffer under Gramm-Leach-Bliley, which is they can opt out, but they can't, they don't have to be told first. Right. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the data brokers. You know, we we all know that there's almost uh, you hear about it every day. In fact, today I just read that uh, ChoicePoint had to disclose that there were seventeen thousand more victims of uh, their their security breach. I saw that as well. Yeah. So well, you know, it's a very mysterious industry. It sort of has kind of crept um, into being over the last few years. We know very little about how they operate. We do know that they sell the information that they gather to all kinds of entities. I mean, financial institutions, companies. Now, they they say they access their information from per, from public documents, um, and then from uh, other kinds of documents, be it newspapers or um, you know other publicly available information, whatever that means. Um, so, Choice Point, for instance. In, for instance, has 19 billion consumer records in its database. Um, What troubles me about them is that they have no accountability. So they read something in a newspaper about you, and then they incorporate it into their file. Whether it's accurate or not is um, up to all kinds of um, uh, discussion and dispute. And you don't even know about it. Um, If you've ever done a credit um, a search of, of your credit, you know this. I mean, many times your credit reports are inaccurate, um, and yet, uh, and there is a means by which you can add an addendum to uh, reference that in fact there's there's false information. So recently, I said to Choice Point, "Give me what you have on me." Right. And there were three or four things in their file on me that were just completely inaccurate. Uh, property I didn't own. Um, a business that I was unrelated to. So they have information. Much of it, uh, I think, is subject to some review and scrutiny. And right now we can't access it. So the bill that I have pending right now in the Assembly is really quite simple. It just says you should have the ability once a year to access what they have on you. Right. Um, And that they would also have to take uh, specific steps to verify their customers. Because what was happening is someone who was a rip-off artist was saying, oh, I'm a small business, I would like to purchase X number of um, files that you have. And in the course of getting those files, they got social security numbers or other ID, and then they used it to steal 
identity. We know of at least 700 cases of identity theft, 750 cases of identity theft associated with the choice point breach. Right, right. And, and you know, you know, under the uh, amendments to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, all you can really get from ChoicePoint, if you go to choicepoint.com and then look at um, FACTA disclosure, which is the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, all you can get is your landlord-tenant history. And if you haven't lived in, a, in a, an apartment for years, that won't be in there. Or you can get your insurance history. And by the way, when I got mine, which you're allowed to get for free once a year, it, it was all wrong, Jackie. Right. Totally wrong. And it could have really encumbered my property. And then the third thing you can get is your work history. And if you've had your own business like I have, so you're not, I'm not in there for that. But when I was at the State Bar Annual Meeting, I went and they were trying to actually sell me the service to, to get AutoTrack. Mm-hmm. And they pulled up about 30 pages on me. And, you know, exactly like what happened to you, there was property I didn't own. There were uh, neighbors I didn't have. My social security number was in there. My kids' social security numbers were in there. Uh, my birth date. Also, you know, you're right, public records, but a lot of the things that came from way beyond obscure public records. And there's no transparency, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting um, issue because public records, on the one hand, you know, public records are there because you believe that there should be a right to be able to examine and inspect them. But because of uh, the Internet now and because of the commercialization of all this information, um, companies have gone in and purchased this data because it's a public record, and then they put it on the Internet. So all of a sudden, you know, what you paid for your home is on the Internet because it's in the property um, assessment records. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, God forbid if, you know, you're being stalked or someone wants to, I always, I'm always surprised that there aren't more movie stars um, that are, um, you know, identified because the public records allow for access to uh, property right. by name. Right, right. It is. It's really frightening for people, or for legislators, you know, or or even radio talk shows. Well, you know, the truth is, is that remember when the uh, I think her name was Rebecca Schaefer was stalked by. um, She was a star. She was stalked by um, you know someone who was starstruck. Uh, He got her information from uh, the DMV by just requesting it, and he killed her. Right. Well, after that, we shut down the DMV records for people to access some of that kind of information unless you, you know, were le- legitimately there for specific pers- purposes. You were an attorney or law enforcement. Um, and then if you want, if you're just, you know, an average person off the street, before you could get that information, there was a letter sent to the owner of that DMV record. Well, so we closed it there because, uh, you know, a, a star died, a celebrity died. Right. Um, but we've left all these other areas open for the same kind of potential abuse, and that worries me. It worries me, too. I know that, you know, I'm so thrilled that you've introduced this new legislation that would, you know, allow us to get our full file for, you know, once a year. The The problem is in terms of, like, at least with your with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you can get your credit report, and you can see in the inquiry section all the other people who got it, and you can correct it, or at least you can dispute it, and, and if they can't verify it, you know, it gets removed, and then you can put the 100-word statement, all that good stuff. And um, Senator Bill Nelson from Florida had introduced legislation in, um, in Congress to try and set up a similar system, and it's dead. It's dead. I mean, the the data brokers are so enormously powerful with their lobbyists, and they're selling, obviously, this information to government. And uh, there's a lot of reason that the, uh, like you said, greed, (laughs) there's a lot of money in it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's really going to, you know, it's not going to happen at the congressional level. And then, of course, if your bill passes, then they're going to try and do something to dilute it. At the congressional level. Well, you know, it's already happening. Yeah. At the congressional level, they are trying to preempt states right. from doing any more than California has already done, which is requiring a notification to consumers if there has been a breach and their, their information has been accessed. So they, you know, they saw me coming, <laughs> and they didn't want to be able, they didn't want to have to tell us what they have on us 
so they're going to the feds to try and get it preempted. It's really outrageous. And then they say that they do all these things in the, you know, with their lines about like, trying to you know, protect consumers and, and deal with identity theft. Uh, and, and really, they're, they're doing very little because all they do is increase the penalties for identity theft. And what we all know is that the local law enforcement do not have the resources to go after these identity thieves. They don't have the financial resources. They don't have the, the bandwidth to do it. And so, you know, most people, if they've lost their identity, have to go it alone in terms of trying to, um, you know, reconstruct their identity and, and clear up their name. So, you know, much of what Congress has done in this issue uh, area is, is with little um, relevance and, and little effect and, you know, a little window dressing here, a little fig leaf there, but, um, you know, no real significant benefit whatsoever. Right, and and it's a travesty. We had uh, Senator Simidian on recently, and he talked about, you know, he and Senator Peace were the ones who had introduced our security breach law, and um, basically our our law, as you know, says that the trigger is if there is a breach of sensitive information and it's unencrypted and it's electronic or it was once electronic, you've got to notify all potential victims. And I just have seen, you know, recently in following what Congress is doing is they're trying to make it that the um, that the company will decide itself whether there is a, quote, reasonable risk of harm before they have to give notice. So the trigger is if the company decides that there's a reasonable risk of harm. And, and that means everybody's going to hide it because they're going to decide, well, our attorney sold, told us there was no reasonable risk of harm. Well, exactly. And then, you know, in this case with ChoicePoint, 160,000 um, affected. Right. So then they won't notify anyone. There will be 750 cases of identity theft, and people won't know from where it's come. And that's what's happened. In fact, before um, our law became effective in July of 2003, there were lots of different breaches from, from Axiom, which is another one, another company, right. and, and um, LexisNexis, who had a big one this year of 130000 And when I testified in Congress this year, they admitted right in front of me and everybody else that, yes, they had breaches in 2002, and they didn't disclose it because there was no duty to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to happen again. And, and it's so... It's so dis- I mean, on one hand, I'm so proud to be from California where we have privacy leaders like yourself. And then on the other hand, I feel, oh, my goodness, why don't we have anybody really strong like that at the, at the federal level? We just don't. Well, you know, it speaks to the power of moneyed interest. Um, it really speaks to you know, the fact that in the end, all politics is local and the farther you get away from the voters, the less attuned you are to what their real interests and needs are. I mean, many people will say to me, oh, come on, it's, you know, privacy. No one's got any privacy anymore. Right, you know, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And, you know, the reason why we need to be so concerned about it is that we don't know when we're being discriminated against. The example I use is this. Um, I am in charge of, um, you know, refreshments for the local bazaar. So I go out twice a year and buy a ton of wine. It's on my credit card. Right. That information is then sold to any number of entities. Let's say it's sold to a life insurance company or a health insurance company. They then look at that information, make assumptions about me, and either deny me that particular product or charge me a higher premium not knowing that it was, you know, for a charitable event that I was purchasing all of that wine. Right, right. Well, Jackie, you've been so terrific. I just want my audience to hear about some of the legislation that you've passed besides SB1, which was our Financial Privacy Act. But also, you know, one of the things which was frightening for me, I remember when my parents died and their Social Security numbers were were on their death certificate. And, of course, on my birth certificate was my mother's uh, and father's Social Security numbers. So, you know, you had passed legislation to to protect those so that only the families could, could get that. And then also court records, you require that, you know, in family law cases, which is what I do a lot of, is that the Social Security number would no longer be right out there for everybody to see as a public record. 
Exactly. And, and then you had the, you know, supermarket re- rewards cards. and um, That's a great one because in other states they don't have this benefit. The only way that they can share information from what we purchase is in the aggregate. So there is no, you know, like list of all of the... In the, the high fat products we we purchase, so that it'll affect our right. our health insurance or, um, or, or life insurance or life insurance exactly. Um, but I got to tell you, all of these issues started out as much bigger bills and ended up getting reduced in size because of the power of some of these interests out there. I got to tell you, what was troubling to me was the fact that anybody anybody could walk into a vital statistics office and get a copy of someone's birth certificate. Yes. Anybody. Well, and then we we were surprised that there was a lot of fraud associated um, with um, you know various people's identity. I mean, it was just so so obvious to me as as with the death certificates. And then all of them were being sold on CD-ROM for you know a hundred dollars by the state of California's Department of Vital Statistics, and we put a stop to that because. Um, you know, in the end, that was going on the internet. Your mother's maiden name was was there for everyone to see, so they could access your uh, account at your local bank. By the way, I never use my mother's maiden name. I use my dead dog's name. Well, <laughs> I hope no one knows your dead dog. Don't even <laughs> I have to change it. I know I made up this really weird name, and and that's my when everybody asks me now, that's my mother's maiden name. And you know, they'll tell you what well, when you say I want to have a different password, they'll say we don't have a field for that. So you just tell them this is my mother's maiden name, and this is the word I'm going to use for my mother's maiden name, because it is. It's on the Internet everywhere. Right. The other thing that I think is important for consumers to know is that, you know, when you go and you make a, a purchase at a, at a department store and they ask for your zip code? Yes. You should never give it. Right. Because once they have your zip code and they have your credit card number, they can get your address and they can then sell that information. Right. Well, Jackie, we only have a couple minutes left. I, I got to have you back on again. In fact, I wish I could grab you for an hour or two because <laughs> there's so much to talk about. But uh, what do you think the future holds for privacy threats and privacy protection? Well, I think they're they're only growing. I mean, we're having a hearing next week, and one of the issues we're talking about are state laptops that are not encrypted and that have um, social security numbers of, of Californians on them. Um, I think we've got to get... Um, we all have to get much more savvy about what we release about ourselves um, and presume that you don't have to release almost anything. Your Social Security number does not have to be released except for very narrow exceptions. Um, we've taken off the Social Security number on your health plan. No longer can they use that. And we've, we've just got to get tough and make sure that um, that number is only used in very narrow um, areas. Uh, when you're asking for credit, uh, when you're dealing with the federal government on some issue or the state government. That, I mean, that's basically it. Well, Jackie, we're going to lose you in, t- what, the end of 2006? That's right. But, that's but what term limits does for all of us. I know, but the good news is that you're running for lieutenant governor, and I want to give the website. It's uh, http colon forward slash forward slash Jackie Spear. It's S-P-E-I-E-R 2006.com. And you can also see her legislation and see how you can support her there as well. So what can you do for us when you're the uh, lieutenant governor? Well, one of the things I want to do is, is make that office meaningful. It has been, uh, for in many respects, you know, just a, a uh, an office in which the individual sat there, took the pulse of the governor occasionally, and uh, you know used it as a as a stepping stone. I, I truly want to make the office um, the guardian of higher education in California, and, and it's perfectly primed to do that because the lieutenant governor does serve on the board of regents and the CSU board of trustees. I'm going to um, carry bill next year to also have the individual serve on the. A community college board, and we have so much at stake. I just had a hearing at UC Merced this afternoon on the cost of a UC education. I mean, we're talking $100,000 now for a UC education. And I have a daughter at UC Santa Cruz, and I'm sitting here on the campus of the University of California in Irvine, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, Jackie, can we have you back again? Sure, I, I would look forward to it. Okay, well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day, and we want to support you on your legislation at least until the end of 2006 and get you to do some good work uh, as lieutenant governor. So thank you so much for uh-huh. joining us. Thank you, my pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. 
and KUCI.org. And uh, we have another guest coming up in just a minute. So that was a good interview with uh, Senator Spear. Um, who's coming up next? Uh, we have a, a really great guest. We have Lenny Goldberg. You know, we're, we're, we're into politics tonight because tonight we're going to be inter- introducing Sacramento lobbyist Lenny Goldberg. And uh, he, I have to tell you, Lenny graduated from Williams College where my son just graduated with his master's degree from Williams College. Okay. So we saw that beautiful area in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and I, I got a kick out of that when I saw his background. I have I met Lenny a few years ago and was so impressed because he is a lobbyist for the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and I am so privileged to sit on the board of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, their advisory board. So let me tell you a little bit. Lenny uh, has made a career of battling corporate business interests on behalf of the poor, consumers, dealing with privacy concerns, children, and union members. And he has a firm called Lenny Goldberg & Associates. He's up in Sacramento, California. And he lists as his chief clients the California Tax Reform Association, which, among other goals, wants to remove business properties from the property uh, tax, the property thirteen uh, Pro- proposition thirteen, cap tax, uh, cap protection. Gosh, I can't talk tonight. And um, he has, like I said, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. He has been so active in many really important issues for consumers, and uh, we're just thrilled to have him. We have a lot more about his bio on our website. But um, he has degrees in economics from Williams College and the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, are you there, Lenny, to join us? Yeah, Mari. I didn't know until I read that that you went to William. That was so pretty up there. Right, really. It's been, yeah, four years. It was cold in the winter time. <laughs> yes, and say. and my son was born in Newport Beach, and he froze his little bottom off. So I'm sure. But uh, actually, he's still there because when he finished his master's, he got to stay on as a, somewhat like an extern at uh, the Clark Institute, oh, the Art Institute. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. So, so Lenny, you know, I, I, I don't know too many lobbyists, and, and of those that I know, you're about the only one I really like. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's because the lobbyists I meet with are always on the other side of the issues that I'm supporting. So how did you become a lobbyist? Well, I've always had a really strong interest in public policy, and I was, my background and training was in economics. Um, but I always felt that rather than being an academic, I wanted to put the ideas, the policy ideas, into the real world. Uh, more specifically, I worked in the legislature. I was legislative staff uh, for Assemblyman Tom Bates, who uh, is, was termed out recently and is now the mayor of Berkeley. But that was in the late 70s and early 80s. I followed the uh, many of the ch- there was the Brown administration. Many of the changes that occurred then, passage of Prop 13, and other issues. And when I, um, you know, the legislative staff is a great position. I highly recommend it. But at a certain point, you kind of want to become your own person. I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go in, and um, kind of hung out my shingle uh, to do some work, uh, lobbying, consulting, some political campaigns. So uh, I, you know, I can't say I had a specific business plan or a goal. And you know, the phrase "lobbyist" is kind of questionable. My wife has a hard time when they ask spouse's occupation, and <laughs> she has to put down lobbyist. <laughs> uh, she puts down public interest advocate. I think oh, I love it. <laughs> well, that's what you are. So, how did you get interested in the privacy issues, Lenny? Well, you know, I, I think. Um, the it, in a lot of the work that I've done, I've worked on consumer issues for turn and uh, electricity and telecommunications, um, and from that have you know have developed a strong sense of uh, consumer uh, consumer protection. The fact that consumers are very very poorly represented, uh, small consumers in particular, and. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that struck me so strongly about this issue was how incredibly popular it is 
among the populace. And now I work on some issues that are kind of unpopular, shall we say, tax policy or, uh, you know, even some of the, like, farm worker housing or other issues that I've worked on, um, some social service and human service issues. And in this case, it's, it was it's a huge discontinuity between the fact that, you know, overwhelming numbers of people, 90% of the people, uh, want want to protect their privacy, uh, financial privacy. When we had focus groups, everybody was overboard on it, on that, and and how little representation there is. Uh, this specific connection, actually, to Privacy Rights Clearinghouse came because I was representing the Utility Consumer Action Network out of San Diego, as well as turn in uh, energy and telecommunications and um, hooked up as I hooked up with UCAN, um, Beth Givens and and the uh, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse was trying to, I think, you know, look at a, a somewhat broader scale, broader advocacy scale. So it's funny that you asked the question because I can't remember exactly how I got hired by Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, but I'm pretty sure it was through the connection with UCAN. Right, and I started to play a role, and they had privacy issues as well, started to play a role in that. Uh, privacy issues can't come up in, in some of the telecommunications issues in any case, so I thought it was a pretty natural fit, a very good extension of the work I'd already been doing. Right, and now, you know, as, it's, as we've gotten more technological and more into the security issues, privacy is just popping up everywhere everywhere that we speak about it. When we were just talking to Jackie Spear about um, SB1 and the financial privacy that act that we that she finally finally got passed, but you know, she was talking about what a what a horror show it was and and for her with a journey. And as you as the lobbyist, um, what can you tell us about how, how that whole thing went and what the forces were and how did you deal with that? Well, you know, the, it, it's interesting that when you actually look at all, it's a long story here, but the, the resolution of the issue was actually somewhat disappointing. Not that we didn't win, but the only way ultimately we could break through the core of lobbyists, and, and when I say core, it was more like a battalion yeah. uh, on the other side, was by having the the large amount of money that Chris Larson from Elon was willing to put up to say we're going to go to the ballot with us. And, you know, what was really unfortunate is that it was very, very hard getting leverage in the legislature. First thing, as we were moving through, we ran into resistance. And I, I don't want to repeat what Jackie explained, but um, ran into resistance from the administration, from the Gray Davis administration, who were listening really a whole lot more to Citicorp, I think, than they were listening to consumers. Um, it's in interesting because from the other side, I've talked to a number of the lobbyists there, and they there were something like 85 lobbyists. <laughs> wow. picked up a contract with one firm or another, whether it's credit card or securities or banks. Uh, you know, there was a huge crew. All of them were making a lot of money on the fact that there was a handful of us. And, and one of the things about being a public interest lobbyist is that you have to get used to walking into a room and holding your own when there are one or two or three of you against... 50 years and exactly. 100 um, and you know there were there were so many ins and outs uh, I don't know where to start but one of the things that that I found very interesting is that you know the the uh, industry sent out their big guns from Washington so-called big guns you know people to come out and testify about it what a ridiculous this idea this was that we might go with financial privacy and basically they treated you know the folks in washington this is the beltway mentality treated us out here in california like we were a bunch of rubes you know well we got the truth here and in fact they made some terrible blunders and said some terribly stupid things which ended up helping us because it was as if you know you state state level folks don't really understand the picture and don't understand the issue Jenny, and, uh, what kind of things did they say? Well, they kind of ran through how our bill, Jackie's bill, really, this is on financial privacy, was so wrong-headed because, you know, you guys couldn't, con you didn't consider this and you didn't consider that. It was really as, it was extremely condescending. Mm. And of course, and they, we didn't understand the federal legislation. Um, 
Right, they thought that, that it was preempted entirely by... Well, yeah. you know, and it, it, they did ultimately preempted, which in a pure power play, or preempted a lot of it. But it was really the sense that we didn't, uh, you know, you you silly folks out here in California really don't understand. Um, one of the things that was quite gratifying on that, uh, uh, on that issue was that we really, really worked together cooperatively. Uh, Shelley Kern from Consumers Union, at the time, um, the AARP, CalPERG, the Consumer Federation, and the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. I, I hope I'm not missing anybody. We, you know, that's five. Was, was Epic <laughs> helping you too? That was our that was our coalition. Uh, of, you know, of five, right. um, which seemed like a large number. Often it's a very solo, you know, it's very solo. I get calls from people in the legislature saying, mostly often Deborah Bowen's office, for example, saying, well, we have a privacy bill. We need somebody over there oh. to support it. <laughs> uh, so I go running over and support the bill. Um, but... Uh, in this case, you know, there were literally, I'm sure, over a hundred on the hundred lobbyists on the other side. You know, a whole slew of insurance and securities and banking lobbyists. What was interesting about that process is that I think over the few several years, um, the industry started to come around. They started to understand um, how. It, you know how there was a regime of reasonable uh reasonable controls over the use of financial information and of course they started to understand because they had the same polling we did you go to the <laughs> you go to focus groups and polls we had focus groups where people would say um you know, we would say, well, you should be able to release your information for the purpose of completing a transaction. And they would say, no, I want to be asked every time right. I, uh, I release my information, even if I'm using an ATM. Well, you know, that may be a little impractical, but it gave us a sense that, and a slogan, too. And the slogan that we would have probably, if we had to go to the ballot, was its very clear statement of privacy principles in, in three words, which is, Ask me first. You know, I think we learned a lot from talking, from going to polling and focus groups and, and listening to what people said. We say, well, I want to be asked. If you're going to release my information, ask me first, which really is, you know, we talk about it as privacy jargon, as opt-in. But really, was I, I do think we learned a lot. And, you know, I found it as a lobbyist, as I said, pretty very gratifying to feel like, you know, this is not about liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, old, young, rich, or poor. Everybody <laughs> resents the fact that their data is on the wire, which I think is something, that, uh, a little phrase that I, I invented during this process, you know, should our information just be out there on the wire? And everybody resents that. It cut across all political lines. And, uh, and, and Jackie may have described this, but it was pretty bizarre at the end where, you know, people who opposed the bill and stopped the bill and bottled up the bill for really for several years stood up on the floor of the legislature and said this is long overdue we need <laughs> to protect our our consumers and and really what you know broke the broke the tide and we you know we met in in uh, hotel rooms in San Francisco was really the fact that we were going to go to the ballot and whether or not our ballot measure had succeeded or failed i mean well it would have it had had been legal or not, that was the question, whether it had been preempted by the feds, it would have passed overwhelmingly. And the industry really wanted to avoid a referendum that says, you know, on finance, for financial privacy, don't do it. So the politics, you know, I think we were fortunate. Otherwise, you know, it's really amazing that an issue that is supported by so heavily by people can be bottled up by so many interests in the legislature and it really was only when the banks insurance companies and security firms said okay we release you legislators on the banking committee you know go ahead and vote for this and then we then the bill passed 75 to 1 in the assembly right uh, right but of course you had your leverage because you had that initiative because we had the initiative and, yeah. and you know that speaks to the not the success of the process but it kind of speaks to the failure of the process because us consumer groups, you know, probably we could not have, 
raised a million dollars, which is what it takes to, you know, circulate signatures, and no matter how strongly people supported this issue, to get that leverage. And, you know, when, when people say, oh, the process works, you know, I actually think the process yeah. didn't work except for the fact of the initiative. So as we come out of this last election and everybody says, they all go down and everybody says, what a waste to, you know, have to do the initiative. Well, an initiative is a necessary way to leverage the legislature on where the people support you, you know, by overwhelming majorities. And yet, you know, literally, um, oh, I forget the number, but it was many, many tens of millions of dollars of money, of lobbying money was spent by industry to block this thing. Right. And and the fact that you had Chris Larson, uh, like you said, from Elon, giving us right. that, that start to get the initiative there. Right. And, uh, yeah, so... I guess, you know, I don't know if we can do that every time for every kind of... Uh, no, we certainly can't, but I, I do think that climate has changed a little bit. Now, where the climate has not changed is at the federal level. There was this very interesting uh, poll done by CBS that said... The, the he asked people how they feel the federal government or the Congress was protecting their privacy, and they all thought they were doing a terrible job. And you know, it's a pretty, it's not that out front an issue. So I thought people were extremely well educated about that, knowing that the that basically that the federal government was, if not in the pocket of the banks and insurance and yeah. securities firms, at least not doing the job they needed to do to protect their privacy. So I thought that showed a very high level of sophistication in this poll. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the big question is, uh, as a political or as, a, as an advocate in the political process, how is it, how can we mobilize those very strong opinions of the public, as I said, cut across party lines, ideological lines. Uh, in fact, as you know, when I'm sure you've, you know, in your privacy work, you know, the left and the right <laughs> all meet in the center on this issue. Right. Uh, that it cuts across these lines, and yet we're really unable to break through the special interest pressure that dominates the Congress. Yeah, I think the only thing that we can count on is perhaps the media and and really talking to people. For example, for the security breach issue, um, we've got, like the Poneman Institute, Larry Poneman was on our show a couple times, and they did a, a study recently to show that people want to know if their information has been acquired by a criminal or unauthorized people, they want to know about it. Yet, Congress right now is already saying, well, we're going to let the companies themselves decide if there's a reasonable risk of harm. We're going to preempt the California law that allows, that, that requires that companies and, and governmental agencies that they divulge as soon as they know about the breach, if it's unencrypted and if it's sensitive information. So, you know, here we have lots of surveys showing what the public wants, but somehow their voice doesn't get heard because it's over overwhelmed by the lobbyists on the other side. Right, and, and you know, uh, you, you, your suggestion, you, you mentioned, well, when something happens, you can, you can get a reaction. I think it was very successful when um, the state had a significant security breach. We were able to pass, you know, leadership of Steve Peace and Joe Simidian. We were able to pass, based on that anecdote, that event, um, a pretty, you know, the only security breach law in the country, right. which required notification. And that law itself then led, although we don't get to a happy outcome yet, and you may have talked to Jackie about this, that law then led to the knowledge that of the Choice Point breach, where they sold all of our, who is Choice Point, and why do they have our data, and why are they selling it to criminals? You know, that raised that whole question. Um, there was a big, little bit of uproar in Congress, but they don't think they ever got anywhere. And Jackie Spear had a very good bill, which we think, you know, we have a chance at next year. But, you know, in, in politics, you know, I, I hate to use a cliche, but it's true. 
timing is everything. Right. And so when you had that choice point incident, we were trying to strike while the iron was hot, and we got the bill through the Senate. It is stalled in the Assembly now. I think there may there continues to be a reasonable expectation that we can uh, get a bill out, but I hate to say it, the likely the greater likelihood of that is if there's another data broker breach. Right. Well, they just <laughs> they just recently announced that a choice point had to send out notices to uh, seventeen thousand more people. Uh huh. So that's good. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> no, the notifi- notification is good, and and um, you know, really, people want this to stop happening. So, uh, you know, we are trying to get we, data brokers are someone over whom we have no knowledge and no regulatory control. So what happens when you walk into this room and there is lobbyists on the other side? I mean, you must all know each other really well. Is there any kind of collaboration between everybody with the with the forces of dark and the forces of light so to speak well you know i we we i the permanent privacy lobby is not that many you know people get there those that were able to weigh in like aarp that was in particular on financial privacy they have a lot of other priorities although they still maintain a strong interest in the privacy issue um you know the the ins and outs, the details of it are not. Uh, there are not that many people that follow these issues, so we get pretty hammered. I'd say at a at a hearing where you have, you know, all kinds of people drawing out all kind all, all kinds of people from the other side. Um, you know, the financial world has a huge number of lobbyists. Now we do mostly all know each other. Um, I feel like you know the consumer side keeps all these lobbyists in in business. You know, we don't have very much money at all on our side. We scramble and struggle to put it together, and they all pay get the big bucks because we've created the issue. If we didn't exist, they wouldn't need a hundred lobbyists doing financial privacy. Right? They uh, should pay you. Yes, really. <laughs> or they should. Well, more than that, they should contribute to privacy organizations. Right, and right. that create the uh, environment which lead them to have the clients that they can try to beat us back. Anyway, it doesn't. Fortunately, it isn't. It doesn't work that way. That would be dishonest. Right. But um, you know, so, there's so a, who's in the coalition? You've got, uh, for example, Epic, the Electronic Privacy Information. Yeah, Center. and they've been tremendously helpful recently because the. I, I have to say, I think we're a little weak on the technolo- technological issues. You know, and and I talked to somebody who cares a lot about privacy who said, I don't care, care, and this came up in the Google Gmail issue. Well, I use Gmail. I don't care that they read my email because I think, I believe I have no privacy in the Internet. Right. And, you know, if or if people are going to li- watch find out what I'm doing, they're going to find out what I'm doing, although, you know, there's a lot of consumer information and data that flows. Um, but I think the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation and Electronic Privacy Information Center have been terribly important in terms of saying, yes, there are things we can do. Right now we're engaged in a major RFID battle, and we just had a meeting, uh, radio, you know, the radio frequency identification device issue. We just had a meeting with the Electronics Association and a number of the companies and you know, and then NACLU and and uh Epic and like EFF. Uh and there's you know, they have people who really understand technology. Right. You know, we're get we where they condescend, Oh, you you policy people, you lobbyists, you don't understand the technology and it's really important to have them uh in the picture so that they can say, you know, we got guys who can build stuff that can hack into everything and, right, you right. know, and break down the RFID protection. So let's get some standards here where we're going to have some protections. The RFID issue is an interesting issue in terms of how the uh, politics and the lobbying process plays out. Joe Simidian, I, I know you've talked to him on the show. He does right. a tremendous job on this. and. One of the things is that the bill is extremely reasonable such that every editorial board who, you know, often look askance at these ideas has, uh, has, has taken very close look at it and supported it. However, 
You know, there's a very, very powerful electronics industry lobby, and the, and and really, what you know, I, I make a point in my lobbying. You know, as when I lobby, really know the other side's arguments, really understand what motivates them. So I do. You ask about all the other lobbyists. I talk to them all the time, and I talk to them all the time by asking questions and finding out where they're where they're coming from and where their clients are coming from, and. Um, you know the uh, in this case, and and in a, in a number of cases, like in financial privacy, well, sure, they make a ton of money by selling all our information, right? Right. right? You know, and you got to figure out how they operate. Well, in this RFID case, I'm trying to figure out why the ind- I've been trying to figure out why is industry so adamantly opposed to any restrictions on the use of RFIDs, and the answer is this is a vast market and they really see it as a vast market they don't want anybody horning into their business and telling them what to do which you know is legitimate in the private market but really raises the question when and we say okay you know we're talking about mandatory identifications we're talking about driver's licenses what do you and 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 it's been helpful the last meeting we had we put it back to the industry and said, all right, what what protections do you think ought to exist if you're carrying a tracking document around with you, one that can be read without your information, and this is the ask me first. If I'm going to give up my information, I'm going to, you know, let me know um, what I'm, let me know that I'm giving it up. What do you think should be the protections? And, of course, you know, they're going to have, we, we haven't heard back from them, but they're going to have a very hard time coming back with a legitimate set of protections because it really turns out, maybe I'm wrong about this, but from what I can tell is the industry really, in in this RFID case, the industry really doesn't want anybody telling them what to do. Now, you know, as as you know, the passport issue got turned around a little bit. Right. Uh, and so maybe that will happen with driver's licenses. But in this real, you know, the the world that we're looking at on driver's licenses is a, the real ID, the federal legislation that says every state has to have some kind of system for uh, for computer tracking or or magnetic or electronic data identification. And the push is very, very strong to put RFIDs nationally in driver's licenses. Um, I think it was set back a little by the, the passport flap. But, um, and so, you know, all we've been saying very reasonably is, well, you know, don't put them in driver's licenses, on, you know, a moratorium until you figure out what the implications of that are. And they keep running around saying they're trying to ban the technology. Right. Well, you know, the argument is completely false, but when it's the electronics industry that's so powerful here in California versus the ACLU and the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, the, you know, you keep hearing back, why do you want to ban the technology? You know, well, right. uh, duh, did you read the bill? Did, right. Does it say that? I know. Right. When Senator Simidian was on, I mean, he said, and he's right from that area. I mean, yes. he's, he's right in the Silicon Valley, and he is very knowledgeable, too. And he said, hey, we are not trying to ban this technology. We're just trying to put some safeguards into it. And that's, that's the, the bottom line. Right. Well, it's an injury, you know, from the lobbying process, it's, you know, that's, it, it's interesting how pervasive the you know the industry can be on this and of course there's bunches of companies and and the electronics association is very powerful um you know and then they bring in they can bring in all their others you know the chamber of commerce and everybody that they're members of and pretty soon you have a very large critical mass and you know i know in this discussion you're interested also in the lobbying process uh going back to both financial privacy or any of these issues what you have when you have a bunch of lobbyists is each one of them may have a different relationship to different members of the legislature. So if you've got three of us or five of us, and, and in the case of RFID, really on the ground, it's just me and the ACLU, uh, EPIC or EFF, it really right. isn't represented regularly up in Sacramento, uh, you know, we've got to cover 120 members. These guys, if they've got 50 or 60 or, you know, 30 people, they got to cover four each. 
So it's really, and and they may be old friends with one, and I, I actually have had occasion to work with some corporate law, corporate group on the same side where we sit down in a room and I look around and I say, oh, that's how they do it. <laughs> they, have, they have 15 15 people hired and and they gave me just assignments to talk to two or three people who are my good friends who trust me, you know, implicitly and it was a piece of cake to get the votes. Right. It's a lot harder <laughs> when you've got to make all the rounds and, you know, and knowing that some of the people who are friends with the legislators, legislators on the other side okay. uh, have already been there to talk to them or, you know, yeah. take, taking yeah. them to dinner. Lenny, that's so great. Thank you so much. We're going to have to go. We're going to have to get you back on. Okay. And we're going to be supporting you and find ways that we can make your coalition bigger and make your life easier. So. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's fun battling away. So. Right. So we've right. been talking. To, so, Lenny, we thank you for joining us. We've been speaking with Lenny Goldberg, and he is a lobbyist up in Sacramento for privacy issues. And you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. And listen to us every Wednesday at 5 to 6 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. Visit our website at KUCI.org forward slash Privacy Piracy to see our future guests and listen to our previous interviews. Thank you, Lloyd.